Hello, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH. This week, I'm summarizing the March 12th, 2021 weekly report. Let's get started. Article 1, Accidental Consumption of Poisonous Mushrooms. So, reports of severe mushroom poisonings have increased from 1999 to 2016. And this is specifically from people eating mushrooms that they foraged for food or for psychedelic purposes. And in this 1999 to 2016 time period, about 7,500 poisonous mushroom ingestions were reported annually to poison control centers in the United States. So yeah, accidental mushroom poisonings are a public health concern. And in this study, Gold and colleagues looked at the time period of 2016 to 2018, and they estimated emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and severe adverse outcomes associated with accidentally ingesting poisonous mushrooms. The researchers found that during 2016, accidental poisonous mushroom ingestion was associated with 1,328 emergency department visits and 100 hospitalizations. Most of the mushroom poisonings were from mushrooms that were foraged for food compared to mushrooms that were foraged for psychedelic purposes. And from 2016 to 2018, 8.6% of patients who sought care for poisonous mushroom ingestion had a serious adverse outcome. Most commonly, this was cardiac arrhythmia, acute renal failure, and liver failure, but there were other outcomes as well. Also of note, these serious adverse outcomes were more common in Medicaid-insured, aka low-income, patients. And in general, poisonings were more common in the Western United States. The public health implication here is that wild mushrooms should not be consumed unless they're identified by an expert. We need continued public health messaging about the potential consequences of poisonous mushroom ingestions, and like everything public health, the messaging needs to be tailored to the demographics and geographic regions where mushroom poisonings were most common. Article 2, HIV testing at tuberculosis clinics in Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. First of all, the World Health Organization recommends HIV testing and counseling in TB clinics for all patients, regardless of their TB diagnosis, TB being tuberculosis. And TB and HIV, they are comorbidities that interact very negatively together. So people living with HIV are about 15 to 22 times more likely to develop TB than people who don't have HIV. And TB is the most common presenting illness in people with HIV and is a major cause of HIV-related deaths. And this is especially pronounced in sub-Saharan Africa, which accounted for 84% of all HIV-associated tuberculosis deaths in 2018. And so the countries that this study looked at, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, they are sub-Saharan African countries. Anyway, this study looked at data from the Population-Based HIV Impact Assessment, or PHIA, surveys, which reached about 20,000 people from each country of interest, again, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. PHIA surveys collect information on HIV risk factors and include an actual HIV test as a survey component. The PHIA surveys in this study also included a question asking about whether the respondents had ever been to a tuberculosis clinic, and about 5-10% to of the respondents indicated that, yes, they had been to a tuberculosis clinic. Now, of this group, across Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, 
only 48 to 62% of these TB clinic attendees reported that they had received HIV testing during their TB clinic visit. But as I mentioned before, the World Health Organization recommends HIV testing at TB clinics for all patients. So of the people who did not get tested for HIV at tuberculosis clinics, but then ended up testing HIV positive through the PHIA survey, 16 to 29% of them said they didn't know their HIV status at the time of their tuberculosis clinic visit. And the importance of all of this is that when you extrapolate those numbers, that means that potentially 47,000 people in Malawi, 48,000 people in Zambia, and 58,000 people in Zimbabwe are likely HIV positive but weren't screened for HIV at their tuberculosis clinic visits. So they may or may not know to this day that they're HIV positive. And these findings represent a large missed opportunity for HIV screening at tuberculosis clinics. And then the subsequent linkage to care for people in all three countries who test positive for HIV. So the implication is that TB clinics are a recommended place to screen for and catch HIV positive patients. So efforts targeting HIV testing in tuberculosis clinics should be a focal point for global health programs, especially since HIV and tuberculosis are dangerous as co-infections. More about this on the at MMW Recap Instagram page. Article 3 talks about the COVID variant P1, which was reported to the U.S. on January 25th. This variant was originally discovered in Brazilian travelers during an airport screening in Japan. The P1 variant is associated with increased transmissibility between people. So between January 25th and February 28th, 10 cases of the P1 variant had been identified in the U.S. through a technique called genomic sequencing, where you basically just look at the entire DNA of the virus, and that's how you can kind of tell which one is which. But the U.S. has only conducted genomic sequencing for the P1 variant on 15 samples in the past four weeks, which is the fourth most of any country right now, but it's still a relatively small number compared to the 1,372 sequences that were performed for the B117 variant in the past four weeks. That being said, the U.S. has started scaling up its genomic sequencing effort, and the public health implication here is that routine genomic sequencing is important for identifying and tracking COVID variants. Article 4 is a case study about a traveler bringing the B117 COVID variant from the U.K. back to the U.S. So evidence suggests that this variant is more transmissible than other COVID strains, and so in this case study, What happened was a traveler was exposed to COVID via symptomatic relatives during the winter holiday period. Two days before the traveler went home, they tested negative on a COVID antigen test. The day before their flight, the traveler had COVID symptoms and took acetaminophen. And then the day of their flight, the traveler did disclose that they had a runny nose, but they were still cleared for travel. And so they headed home with the B117 variant of COVID. One of the implications here is that that antigen test the traveler took It was obviously wrong, and that's an issue. Antigen tests are less sensitive to COVID compared to other types of tests, and false negatives are a possibility with any type of test. So really, pre-travel COVID testing should only be considered a part of a overall comprehensive national strategy to reduce COVID transmission. But unfortunately, the burden of preventing COVID in America largely resides on the individual. So things like proper timing of COVID tests, testing before and 
after travel, self-monitoring for symptoms, quarantining after travel, using a well-fitted mask, washing your hands, and social distancing are critical in preventing COVID. Article 5, Mask Mandates and In-Person Dining. What do they mean for COVID transmission and death? So in their study, Guy Jr. and colleagues looked at county-level COVID case and death data from across the United States between March and December, aka pandemic months, of 2020. The researchers found that, big spoiler alert here, implementing statewide mask mandates was associated with reduced COVID transmission and death, and this happened within 20 days of the mandate's implementation. This is juxtaposed with the second finding of the study that restaurant reopenings for in-person dining was associated with increased COVID transmission and death within 41 to 80 days after the reopenings began. So the public health implication here? Mask mandates showed effectiveness at reducing COVID morbidity and mortality. And as we are still in this pandemic, having not achieved herd immunity yet, it's still very important to be limiting the spread of COVID-19, especially because there are currently five documented variants of COVID. Yes, five. I know most of us might only be hearing about three, but there are five, including one specific to California. I digress. The takeaway here is that while we're still in this pandemic, policies that restrict in-person dining and mandate masks can help reduce COVID cases and death rates. Final article, y'all. This one's about BMI as a risk factor for COVID case severity. So obesity is a recognized risk factor for severe COVID to the point where obese individuals actually have vaccine prioritization because their condition is so high risk. Obesity also affects 42% of American adults. So prevalence in the United States is high. And in this study, CDC researchers looked at the relationship between BMI and risk for severe COVID outcomes like hospitalization, ICU admission, invasive mechanical ventilation, and death. The sample that they looked at included 140,000 U.S. adults with COVID. And the researchers found that people with BMIs that were between healthy and overweight had the lowest risks for COVID severity. But from there, as BMI increased past overweight, COVID severity increased as well. Overweight or obese people faced a greater risk of invasive mechanical ventilation, and obese people, particularly over 65 years old, faced a higher risk of hospitalization and death. The implication for this study is that overweight and obese people face a great risk of poor health outcomes in many health areas, including COVID-19 outcomes. So policies and programs that facilitate healthy behaviors, along with educational outreach and continued prioritization of obese people for vaccinations, are all critical for achieving better health outcomes in this population. And that is it for this week's recap. If you're interested in the actual CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, you can access that online at their website. For a simple breakdown of the articles I mentioned today, be sure to follow MMW Recap on Instagram. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as always, have a wonderful week.